Welcome to another information session from the California Special Needs Law Group. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and I have an 18, well, almost 18-year-old son with autism. On today's program, I talk with Dr. Perry Passaro about cognitive behavioral therapy, also known as CBT. Cognitive behavioral therapy is an empirical, research-based practice that helps individuals recognize their negative thoughts and replace them with more positive ways of thinking. It can be especially helpful to those with anxiety, depression, and OCD. Today, I talk with Dr. Perry Passaro. He's a licensed clinical psychologist about CBT. We talk about what it is, how it works for students with special needs like ours, and what a typical therapy session looks like. Enjoy the conversation. Dr. Perry Passaro, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. My pleasure. So today we're going to talk about cognitive behavior therapy, and or sometimes known as CBT, and we're going to put it in the framework of a parent who has a child who has an IEP and might benefit from this. For example, it might be I have a son with autism, so it might be a son with high-functioning, or a daughter, of course, who has high-functioning autism and might suffer from some anxiety or depression. Can you tell us, first off, what is CBT? Sure. Cognitive behavioral therapy is an empirically based treatment that has been shown to be highly effective for kids um, who have disabling conditions, as well as as individuals who don't. Um, What cognitive behavioral therapy does is it really tries to help people to identify their thoughts and to be able to make changes in their thinking, which in turn impact their mood and then their behavior. So when we think about, particularly with children, it's very hard for them to change behavior. It's very hard for them to change their mood. But if we can work with them and give them tools to make changes in their thinking, that can have a very profound effect on behavior and mood. So that's really the the foundation of cognitive therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy Mm -hmm. also involves the component of making behavioral changes along with thinking changes to affect both behavior and mood. So it sounds like two steps. Step one is recognizing behaviors that may be negative, and then step two is doing something about that. Is that right? Sure that you can approach the problem from a couple of angles, depending upon, you know, what the issue really is. For example, if the, if the problem is a, is an anxiety or a fear, much of the treatment is behavioral in, in noticing, let's say that the child's afraid of dogs, for example. So we identify the behavior, Mm -hmm. afraid of dogs. And we can obviously talk to children about how, you know, this dog is okay, you know, and really teach them the differences between a, a dog that they could interpret as being, you know, dangerous or a dog that appears to be friendly. And, and so that can be helpful information. But in that case, the treatment is really going to be primarily a behavioral treatment where we gradually expose the child to allow them to get closer and closer to the dog. And then reprogram their mind about the fear. Uh, And that's done through this exposure. 
Ah, okay. So that would be a behavioral, that'd be a behavioral example of cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. treatment. Um, an example that's more grounded in changing thinking and less in changing behavior mm-hmm. might be a child who says that I'm not very smart. I, I can't do this. I can't learn. Um, uh, that would be a, a really good um, opportunity to really work on one of the things that happens in cognitive therapy, which is called Socratic questioning, mm-hmm. really pres- helping the child to see evidence and information that they are smart. Maybe they are having a particular trouble on one subject, um, and, but what tends to happen is that in our minds, we sort of uh, generalize about that. And if we're not good at one thing, then we make these assumptions, um, these negative core beliefs about ourselves that tie into something called automatic negative thoughts uh-huh. that tend to rule people's thinking. And so we try to present evidence to the child. Well, let's see. Let's look at how, how are you doing in this class? Well, I'm doing well. How are you doing in that class? Well, I'm doing very well. And then really trying to be able to narrow down and see, well, it seems like you're having problems in just this one area. Well, yeah, that's true. So then what you're saying that I'm not smart, really, that doesn't seem to fit with any of this other evidence. So, so that's one of the ways you, you try to go about making uh, cognitive changes for, for people um, that uh, can help them see, oh, my gosh, yes, I am I'm making this, this negative overgeneralization, which is really affecting my mood. It's making me sad and depressed, and it's making me not want to, you know, do my homework or mm-hmm. go to school. So, so that would be an example of more of a cognitive approach to treatment. Okay, I think I understand the two differences. So, what I'm wondering then is keeping in mind the lens that the person listening probably has a child who has an IEP or might be heading in that direction. What sort of uh, students is CBT appropriate for? Like, what's a sort of a typical case that you might see? Sure. Well, in, in our center, we see uh, many kids that, that have IEPs. It could range anywhere from a student that would be identified with um, other health impairment and ADHD, mm-hmm. really helping to work on strategies for self-monitoring and self-management, self-regulation. It could range all the way up to students that are identified with um, an emotional disturbance, um, uh, kids who, you know, may meet the criteria in regard to depressive disorders, um, anxiety disorders, uh, any of the, um, uh, the components that tend to make up an educational code uh, identification for emotional disturbance. So we would work on all those types of areas. Uh, students that have um, high-functioning autism, uh, obviously, uh, there's a there's a really a very strong literature uh, about the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy for students with high functioning autism. As oh, a matter great. of fact, it's it's really one of the few. Yeah, there's it's one of the few interventions that has a strong empirical validation for uh, students with high functioning autism. So we see many uh, students in our, our center and that they range from uh, as young as elementary school. We generally start seeing kids for cognitive therapy around nine or 10 years old, but behavioral therapy can begin um, much earlier than that. And, and all the way up through uh, high school and college, I see a number of uh, 
people that I've been working with for um, for for many years that are now in college and even uh, out in the world of work. Okay. So uh, it's interesting about the age thing. So you mentioned as early as nine years old, it's appropriate for kids to uh, use this sort of therapy, right? For cognitive therapy, yes. If we have a, um, uh, absolutely, yeah. The literature really uh, indicates that eight, nine years old is is certainly a time where kids are able to begin to really um, observe mm-hmm. and examine. Uh, their thoughts and really begin to do uh, some experimentation, you know, with the accuracy of their thinking. Okay. So let's, let's pretend I have a child who has high anxiety and I've come to your office and I'm sitting down for the first meeting. Like what's a first meeting typically like for the child and parent? Sure. Um, The first meeting uh, is generally what we like to do is meet with the parents first to be able to get a really good history and to understand what's going on. Okay. So once we've done that, reviewed records, looked at IEP testings that may have been done either through the districts or privately. So we try to get all that background information. We do a real thorough clinical interview to really try to understand the behaviors um, really clearly because we want to be able to target in uh, on where the problem really is. And often children... Uh, can't do a, a, a real good job in regard to identifying that, but parents usually can. And so if we can ask the right questions, they can help us to really identify the triggers or the antecedents, um, specifically what the behaviors are, and then what the consequences for the behaviors are. In other words, what do the parents do when the behavior happens? Because many times parents are accidentally reinforcing the behaviors, particularly in regard to anxiety. So if you think about it as a parent, if your child's afraid of dogs and may be mm-hmm. terrified of dogs, then you don't you don't expose them to dogs. You say, oh, it's okay, and we're not going to go near the dog. Well, right. unfortunately, what happens is that's reinforcing the anxiety. So what we begin to do in regard to treatment uh, right away at the first session with the parents is, is really explain to them how treatment works so that they can understand, oh, my gosh, you know, I've been trying to protect them, but I've actually been uh, uh, reinforcing the anxiety, making it much stronger. So we explain that we're going to need to work together to do a progressive exposure, and we're going to have to, you know, explain to the child, which is really what happens at the next session, explaining to the child why we're going to put them through this, why we're going to ask them to be able to, in time, be able to pet, you know, the neighbor's dog or grandma's dog. So, um, uh, and so when, when kids understand the reason and parents support that, that's, um, that's really the, the, the most important step in, uh, initially in that, in that intake with parents and then the, subsequently the first meeting with the child. And what I see in my practice and my colleagues here is mm-hmm. when we explain to kids what's really going on in their brain, why their brain is worried about this and what's happening and how we're going to help them work through it at their pace. We're not going to push them beyond their capabilities, but we're going to move them along and it'll be a little bit uncomfortable along the way, Mm -hmm. but we're going to be able to help them to get through this. When kids understand that, and it's been explained to them in a way that they can really, you know, get their head around it. 
then most of them tend to really be quite uh, optimistic and happy about the treatment because they don't want to be terrified of it. And so when they see a path, a solution, uh, then kids often get uh, very engaged in their own treatment, which is great. All right. So I think I have an understanding of what the beginning looks like. What, can you let us know what is the middle? Uh, these sessions last, what, maybe 10 to 15 sessions or so? Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Cognitive behavioral therapy is designed to be a short-term treatment. Okay. So what's it it's look like? It's designed to be a treatment that really is... Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to ask, what does it look like mm-hmm. then in the middle? And what's it look like towards the end, like the session? Mm-hmm. So we understand the beginning now, but yeah, what's the middle and the end sure. look like? Sure, sure, sure. So cognitive behavioral therapy, just as you said, is usually 10 to 15 sessions. And and so the middle is really working on the generalization of the skills. Okay. So we're teaching skills and all along the way. So this is an educational model. This is a model where, where people are learning skills that they take from here and apply throughout the rest of their lives. So we're working on generalization of skills, and we're also doing data collection all along the way. Okay. So we start off with baseline data mm -hmm, to see, okay, where are we with whatever the specific problem is? And we're monitoring that for every session. And so midway through, so let's say that, you know, they've been coming in for five sessions, you know, six sessions, where one of the things that we're looking at uh, in that, in those early uh, midpoints in the treatment, it is, are we making progress? Is it measurable progress? Mm -hmm. If it is, then we know we're on the right track. If we're not making measurable progress, then we know something's not quite right. Because generally, in cognitive behavioral therapy, we start seeing measurable progress within five or six sessions. Oh, nice. And so, if not, then we know. Okay, we've got to go back. We've got to, you know, there's something that we're missing here. We have to make some changes, and then, then we move forward again uh, with perhaps a revised plan, and we continue to monitor very, very closely. So where does uh, CBT... The end of the session. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead and finish your thought. I'm sorry. I jumped in. Yeah, tell us about the, okay. the end of it. So, like, what's it look like at the end? Sure. So what it looks like at the end is that, well, you know, what we're looking for is a child who is very, very different than they were, you know, 10 or 15 weeks ago. What we're looking at now is a child who is confident, who's overcome the anxiety, who has an understanding of, of how anxiety works within themselves and, and what the tools are that they need to be able to tackle the next thing that comes up in their life mm-hmm. so that they've really learned how to generalize the skills. Because if you think about one of the great areas of, of concern in, in special education has always been lack of generalization of skills. And so what cognitive therapy does is it, is, it starts out with the idea that we are going to teach the individual these skills and we are going to make sure that they become very good at using them mm-hmm. so that they can generalize them when they're no longer here. Okay. I think I understand that. So what, what sort of success rates, I mean, if I, a child comes into your office, what are the odds that they're going to be have a successful experience and that at the end they'll have the skill that they can transfer to future problems? 
Sure. Um, what the literature really speaks to is that cognitive behavioral therapy is extremely effective for anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. So children that come in with anxiety disorders can often, often make rapid progress with those disorders, particularly when their parents are involved in the treatment. Because, you know, when you really think about it, and we involve parents in the treatment for young children, they're in the session. So they're learning the strategies as well because the child's living with the parents, obviously, and the parents have the opportunity to be doing homework all the time with the child mm -hmm. to help get them better. And so the outcomes um, for children with anxiety disorders is very, very high. Uh, cognitive therapy was originally developed for the treatment of depressive disorders. And treatment with depressive disorders can be much more difficult. But uh, what the literature also speaks to is that even people with moderate levels of clinical uh, uh, depression uh -huh. can uh, complete cognitive behavioral therapy in 10 to 15 sessions as well. More serious forms of depression can take much longer. Um, the other thing that can take a much longer time are uh, individuals who may lack um, some of the insight and introspection um, that, uh, that really are, are prerequisites to good cognitive therapy, and that would include uh, individuals that may have um, uh, high-functioning autism and, or, or what used to be Asperger's syndrome, mm -hmm. th those individuals, it may take longer uh, for them to benefit from treatment. And is this the sort of thing you would check in six months or a year later to sort of just have a refresh? Or once you learn the skill, you're set for life? I, I doubt it's that easy, but I was just asking. Yeah. Right. No, it's a great question. So one of the things that happens in cognitive behavioral therapy is that uh, when people complete a course, then uh, we often do what's, uh, what would be a fading technique. So in the beginning, someone may be coming to sessions every week. Mm -hmm. That may go on for six or eight weeks. We then may go to every two weeks. That may go on for uh, four or five weeks. Then it goes to three weeks, to a month, then perhaps two months, three months. So we do a fading technique that helps with generalization. And then, of course, if people have problems down the road, they come back for some follow-up sessions, some booster sessions, uh, and, and that's uh, common, uh, uh, a common thing to do to, to, again, help tackle a new problem and to um, build generalization. Do you think pretty much everybody could benefit from CBT regardless of whether they have anxiety? Is it that kind of thing in a sense like mindfulness? Absolutely. Hmm, that's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, mindfulness is a part of um, the newest uh, research in uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. So, yeah, there's many, many adults and even kids will say to me, why aren't they teaching this to us in school? Sure, yeah, of course. And the answer to that is, oh, well, I guess we're not sure yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that... Um, yeah, I think that it really offers, you know, many uh, practical benefits to people in regard regarding to understanding themselves better and um, helping themselves with problems, but also improving relationships with others. Ah, uh, sure, of course.
All right, so we're coming towards the end of our time, and I wanted to ask you a final question here. When you talk about CBT, I sense a lot of enthusiasm in your voice. So I was wondering what got you into it. I don't know, maybe you started with CBT, but what got you into it, and why are you so enthusiastic about it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm enthusiastic about it because it works. And I think one of the things that's so important, many of the families that we see here have been to other um, therapists, been to other psychologists, have tried other methodologies, and they come in. And I think it's really important for families and individuals to know that uh, they have a very good prognosis with this intervention. I think people need to know that. There's a, uh, and that's just not an opinion. There's a, um, there's a database that goes back into the 1960s that indicate the effectiveness of these interventions. So this isn't anything new. Uh, so I think it's important that, that, that people understand there's a science behind this. We know that this mm-hmm. stuff works. So the fact that it works and helps people is certainly something that's enthusiastic for me. And I want them to, uh, to feel that there's hope because I think many people that come to us um, feel hopeless. And it's important that they uh, know right away that's not the case. Uh, I got into this actually really, um, uh, really by accident, oh. honestly. Um, I was, uh, yeah, I was a, uh, I started out as a teacher uh, uh, and then became a special education teacher. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I became a school psychologist. And then um I uh, was working primarily with students with emotional disturbance. And since that was the group that I was primarily working with, I really felt I needed to get more training in clinical work. And Mm -hmm. so I uh, went on and um, became a clinical psychologist. And so uh, just to really understand the kids that I was working with. And as I was training, I was disappointed with a lot of what I was being taught in regard to how to help people. Mm -hmm. And when I would try to uh, implement these, these things that I was being taught in school um, with the kids that I was working with, primarily adjudicated uh, adolescents, Mm -hmm. um, it just really wasn't effective. Uh, But as I uh, learned about uh, the cognitive therapies, uh, that really opened the door to an effective intervention Uh, with this very difficult, really uh, at-risk population that that some people refer to as throwaway kids. Right. Um, And and these were kids that people had given up on, and and I really was able to see the advantage of these techniques um, with with these um, very uh, resistant uh, kids. And so that really showed me that if this can work with this population, then it can work with, with pretty much anyone. And so uh, that's how I, I got into it. And, um, uh, and I was really, really fortunate to have um, had some great mentors. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's sort of my story with it. All right, Dr. Perry Passaro, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to an audio information session brought to you by California Special Needs Law Group. It's part of our vision of facilitating a full life for individuals and families with exceptional needs. For more information about us and for further audio interviews as well as written and video, check us out on the web at csnlg.com. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we'll talk again soon.